Thanks for everybody for coming, and uh, thanks to Vienna Wireless for asking me to do a pitch on uh, what I'm calling scratch field hardware-defined analog discrete component home brewing. I'm going to focus on the BIDX-17 transceiver that I recently got involved in, in building. There's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in here, especially about the hardware-defined radio, because I know that today all the rage is software-defined radio, and it's all very interesting. But as I'll describe as I go through this, I, I've kind of, I find myself kind of going in the opposite direction technologically. I'll, I'll tell you about that uh, today. Uh, first, a little bit of background. Some of you guys listen to the Cyber Smoke podcast, so this is sort of old news. But my own background, I was influenced as a kid by, by Gene Shepard, K2ORS, who used to run a, a, an AM broadcast program on WOR in New York. And Shepard would come on every night, and for almost two hours, he would tell stories. It was amazing. He was an amazing source of, of stories. My father and I used to listen to him, and we would, would wonder how he came up with it, this continuous stream of recollections. And every once in a while, he would talk about his youth as a ham radio operator. And he was a, a ham as a kid, and it had a real big influence on him. And the way he described ham radio, he described a ham radio of home brewing a ham radio of technical competence. He described a group of teenage friends who lived in his neighborhood that were sort of in a competition for kind of technical mastery. And I think the one story he told was the kid who in the late 30s built the first television receiver that any of them had ever seen. So there was this kind of hierarchy of technical competence. And they used to go to Radio Row in Chicago and I guess from listening to Shepard, that's what gave me the idea that the real radio amateur should be a home brewer and should, to the greatest extent possible, build his own equipment. So I became a teenage home brewer, but it was a failed teenage, I was a failed teenage home brewer because this was before the age of the internet. There wasn't kind of instant access to Elmers and helpers. And so whatever I built, somehow I couldn't get it to work. And I've recounted these tales of, of heartbreak on the podcast and in a little book I put together about this experience. But I decided to try again. And so in the Dominican, I, I work for the State Department. We spent a lot of time, most of our time, at embassies and consulates around the world. And in the early 90s, I got back into ham radio and I started homebrewing CW stuff. Finally, success. I managed to get a transmitter together. I got on the air with the CW transmitter, had a lot of fun. And a subsequent assignment out in the Azores in mid-Atlantic, I got into double sideband. Because even though I, I love CW and kind of cut my teeth on CW as a teenage ham, I was really always a phone guy, so I wanted a homebrew phone gear. And there was an article by Doug DeMoor in CQ Magazine that described a very simple double sideband phone transceiver. Uh, and this was amazing to me. Well, actually, he described the phone transmitter, but double sideband. It was so easy. It was sort of like the transmitter equivalent of a direct conversion receiver. So I started building at the peak of the last sunspot cycle, double sideband transceivers, mostly for 17 meters. Now I was out of the Azores, I was completely surrounded by the world's greatest ground plane, and with five watts, I was able to work the world. I talked to Australia, used to get into long rag chews with people on, you know, Tristan de Kuna, all over the world. Australia was, was right at the antipode for me, so wherever their beams were pointed, they were pointed at me. It was fantastic, had a great time. Um, Moved to London, and in 2005, uh, a fellow kind of technically oriented ham in Alaska, Mike, KL7R, and I started talking on Echolink, just exchanging notes on technical stuff. And that's when this thing called podcast popped up. And one day, Mike took our conversation, 
without me knowing it, slapped it together, put a little music at the beginning and the end, and that became the Solder Smoke podcast. And we started putting them out. At first, they were put out like once every week, every two weeks. Um, and, but they continue, and we're up to, I think, episode number 159. But now I do them about a month, and my feeling is that if we do any more of that, any more than that, we're in danger of creating a cult. So we keep it about once a month, and that's about it. Um, I, in Rome, 2006, I took some of these stories and some of these experiences and some of the technical adventures, put together a little book called Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics. But uh, my latest adventure, what I'd like to talk to you about today, is a rig called the Bidex. And, uh, oh wait, 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 i got to mention Dilbert, Dilbert and the Nat. Because on the podcast and in the book, we discuss this, this, this affliction called the knack. And the scene that you see there in the lower right is, when, is actually the moment where young Dilbert is diagnosed as having the knack. His mother takes him to the doctor complaining that he's behaving very strangely. He's taking apart electronic things. He's, he seems obsessed with taking apart radios and TVs and anything electronic. The doctor says, don't worry, ma'am, that's, that's normal. Many boys do that. Then the mother responds, but doctor, you don't understand. He uses the parts to build ham radios. At which point the doctor gasps and says, ma'am, I'm sorry to tell you, but your son has the knack and he will become an engineer. So uh, we, we say that many of us have the knack. My and electrically inclines up there because my grandmother spotted this in me very early. And when I was seven years old, she told everybody that she had determined that I was electrically inclined. I think that was because I was able to fix the timer that she used to turn her lights on and off. And so that was at seven. Anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about the BIDX. Um, the BIDX, it stands for bidirectional transceiver. It's originally called the BIDX 20. And I, I got a chuckle because in the VWS flyer that they put out this morning, they, they billed me as a guru. I know. Uh, this is the guru. This is Ashar Farhan. He lives in Hyderabad, India, and he is the designer, the chief designer uh, of the Bidex. He's, uh, he's a real genius, he's a real wizard, he has the knack to the max, and he's a really dedicated ham radio operator. He's a very, very, uh, he's involved in a wide variety of activities uh, and, uh, and all kinds of stuff, literature, he runs a, a cafe in Hyderabad, and he also designed the Bidex. It's, it's interesting, it's important to realize what he was after when he did this. He was looking for a simple circuit, nothing exotic, that could be built for very low cost, and that could be built by amateur radio operators in India who didn't have a lot of money and didn't have access to the parts catalogs that we all have access to. So he was looking for things that could be built out of an Indian junk box or out of the junk box of, of an Indian kid who was able to salvage an old TV or an old stereo or an old computer and pull parts out of it. So no exotic parts, no exotic unobtainium toroids or anything like that. It has to be stuff that you can get easily. So for, and also he, the, the cost, he managed to keep the cost down and he estimates that a, a guy in India, even with a moderately stocked uh, parts junk box, could build it for 300 rupees which comes out to seven bucks. So this is the seven buck SSB transceiver. Um, some of the ways he did it were really remarkable. He wanted to use toroidal inductors because of the shielding, the self-shielding characteristic. But he figured out a way to use nylon washers, like the washers you use in your faucet, 
and he had them winding the toroids on nylon washers. In other places where he actually needed some material in there, some ferrite or some iron powder, he found that TV balance, the kinds of balance that you find in all these little splitters in TVs, and that are available all over the world, if you crack them open, they found that that's pretty much 61 material in there, 61 ferrite. So that's useful also, and they don't have to send away for anything. Again, if they could get an old TV, they can get the core material to make these transformers. And the key part of it, hence the name, is the bidirectional amplifiers. Um, this is the circuit, and you can see the simplicity. This is a complete 20-meter SSB transceiver. And, it, I mean, when you first look at it, it's, it seems daunting, but compare it to the, the schematic diagram of a modern Yesu, Icom, or Kenwood, and this is simplicity itself. Um, and it's a really intriguing circuit. The most important part is, are these three amplifier stages, and I'll show you. Here's the first one, the second one, and the third one, and these are the bidirectional amps. And I'll, I think I'll have the next slide to show you a little bit more about that. Yeah, here it is. It is, uh, th this is the bidirectional amp, it's a feedback amp, and it makes for very easy TR switching. Here's the way it works. You can think of it, even though it's not <coughs> completely true, as two separate amplifiers. One for receive and one for transmit. If you put 12 volts on the receive node here, it turns on this amplifier and it takes signals this way. If you put 12 volts on the T down here instead, it turns on this amplifier and takes signals this way. So receive, transmit, and the whole switchover is, is controlled by whether you put 12 volts here or here. The other fe interesting feature of this amplifier is that you'll notice that there are no coils in it. All right? um, I think he wanted it to prevent people from having to wind up too many toroids on nylon washers. So it's basically RC-coupled amplifiers. And a lot of this design came from Wes Hayward, W7ZOI, and experimental methods in RF design. But it's a really neat, really simple, really stable design, and I think the stability is, is really important. But anyway, um, this came up, and Farhan designed it in 2004. The guys have been building them since 2004. I came at it very late. I was watching them do this. I was watching the discussions on the internet but I didn't get around to it until last year, and uh, I'm, I'm happy I did. Let's see. This is a, I said that was the complete transceiver. It was everything except the linear. And this is the amplifier that's, he, Farhan recommends it that it be built on a separate board. I built it on the same board and didn't have any problems. The heart of it is an IRF 510, real simple power supply MOSFET. They cost about $1.25. They're about the size of your thumb. And I, uh, I built this. Now, I have a long history of having real problems with power amplifier stages. Al almost all of my power amplifiers want to be oscillators. And I always go through this long, agonizing process. I call it the exorcism of trying to get the amplifier to stop being an oscillator. I have to say, this is the amplifier that I've had the least amount of trouble with. And I, I was amazed because the IRF 510, some people say they have, they have kind of conceptual problems with them being used as RF amplifiers. I've built two of these now. And again, these are the most stable RF amplifiers that I've ever worked on. And they both work just right, right out of the, I mean, pretty much the first time. There's always a little bit of kind of tweaking and peaking, 
but they work work very well. And you can see it's very simple. I mean, here's the main index board, the one we just showed before. You've got one driver stage, the IRF 510, low-pass filter, and out you go. And I, my amplifiers, no problem, produce 5 watts on 17 meters. On, on 40 meters, because of increased gain in the IRF 510 at lower frequencies, I have a problem. I'm actually bumping up against the QRP limits. It'll produce, it'll produce a little over 10 watts if I speak too loudly. So I have to be careful to keep it under 10 watts PEP, but it really works like a charm. I, I really love this amplifier because it hasn't given me the kind of heartache that previous <coughs> circuits did. Um, okay, so when you build one of these things, and, and I have up here on the, on the table my version, you can take a look at it later, but you, know, you, you can do it my way. That's one of the beauties of home brewing. Uh, they designed it for, for 20 meters. I decided I wanted to build mine for 17 because that's my favorite band. Also, I decided not to build the VFO that Farhan had in his. I have always had really good luck with VXOs. Doug DeMauw is a big advocate of the use of variable crystal oscillators. This is where you have a crystal in there, but you wiggle it so you get enough frequency shift to make it useful. It's not like you're rock, rock bound, like we used to say. You have, it's, it's run by a crystal but you have caps and coils across the crystal so you can shift the frequency. And I had on hand from a previous project, two crystals at 23.1 megahertz. It's not the same, each of them separate, far enough apart to make a useful uh, kind of pair of crystals for a VXO. And I knew that this is a good idea. With five megahertz, you can see, you subtract and you're right there in the 17 meter band. So you're gonna put the IF at five megahertz and the world is filled with five megahertz crystals that are available for pennies because of the computer industry. So you can buy a bag, a whole bag of five megahertz crystals from Mauser or Digikey for five bucks. And then you get a whole bag and you get to go through and sort of sort them out and test them and see which ones are best for your filter. I prefer to use discrete transistors. And this kind of gets back to what I alluded to in the beginning that I'm kind of going against the trend in terms of technology. Um, when I first looked at Farhan's circuit, the only thing I really didn't like about it was the AF amplifier. He got to the end, and for the AF amplifier on the receiver, he used an LM386 chip, all right? And I didn't like the chip part. Because I, I really felt that by building this thing with discrete components, with discrete transistors, I would personally be building more of the rig. It's just a matter of personal preference. I have nothing against LM386s. I've used them on previous projects, but I found myself wishing that I had instead used discrete transistors. So on this one, I got rid of the LN386 amplifier. I dug around on the internet a little bit. I found that there were other BIDX builders who had similar feelings, and these guys had come up with um, discrete component audio amplifiers for the final stage. So you'll see no chips in mine, so it's chip-free. Still hardware I'm sorry? Still hardware-defined. Still, it's still completely hardware defined. And then again, this is my this is just my preference. Again, this is a million different ways to build a radio. I prefer analog and discrete because like for me it keeps the rig completely understandable. There's no mystery ICs in there that you don't really know how they're working. There's no lines of code controlling it. Uh, you make all of the signal or you make more of the signal. And this is my, my view. And also the simplicity of the thing is a real virtue. So again, this is just a matter of preference, and, and I'm gonna, when I get to the end, you're gonna see I'm gonna deviate from these principles probably in my next project. But, uh, so there's no re reason to be dogmatic about it, but when I built this one, these were the kind of ideas that I had in mind. 
The, the construction technique that we that I use on this is called Manhattan construction, and you you can see it well, later on. You'll you'll see it, but I'll just kind of hold it up. But there's one big PC board, and there's no etching. And what you do is you glue to the top of the board with super glue, little squares or rectangles, circles if you like, whatever you like. You glue them on there. When you have to make a circuit connection, two components, you solder them onto the top of the isolation pad. Anything that needs to go to ground goes directly to the copper clad board underneath. Um, it, they call it Manhattan because it looks like Manhattan. If you look at the board from the side, all the components are rising up, sort of like the skyline of Manhattan Island. Other people say it's Manhattan because if you look at it from above, the squares and rectangles look like the street grid pattern of Manhattan Island. So uh, either way, I, I like it. I was born there, so I guess that it creates a certain affinity with Manhattan. There's no etching. My fingers are not green from that horrible chemical that you get from Radio Shack. Uh, it all goes together very, very fast. You can look at that schematic and then just when you start getting good at it, you start getting these little pads and you glue them down and then you put the circuit down, and it's, it's almost like a direct transfer from the schematic to the board. Um, you're doing more than board stuffing here. Now, again, I don't, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to you know, put other ways of approaching this down, but there are boards available for this. You can go out and buy a PC board and build it that way, and many guys do. And on future projects, I may do that. But again, I wanted to sort of keep in the Gene Shepard ethos here. So. This is more than just stuffing a board full of components. This is actually making the board yourself, but without going to all the trouble of etching. Um, it creates an excellent ground plane, and one of the real advantages is it's easy to modify and repair because it's all on one side. It's all above board. I mean, I've worked, and you guys have worked on these boards where you have to pull it out, flip it over, flip it over, and you break the, you break the leads, and you, you, you melt the, um, the leads off the board. This is much, much easier. Um, it's kind of ugly, and it works. Right? Everybody really likes it. And actually, it's, a it's kind of a, a derivation of what Wes Hayward calls ugly construction, or dead bug construction, where you actually solder stuff or glue the components to the board and have them with their leads up dead bug style. I like Manhattan a little bit better, so I went with, with that style. And you can take a look at it later on. I have the, the rig up here. <clears throat> now, one thing I did when I built this thing, I didn't know I was going to come here to talk, but I thought it would be fun to take pictures of the board as it progressed. So that's what I've done. And there it starts, one blank slate, eight and a half by 11, given to me by a friend, Jim, W8NSA. It's like, a, like, like, face, like an artist facing a blank canvas. Um, there's Farhan's schematic. And I did a little plan, a little rough plan of where I was gonna put the stages. Planning is good. I, I'm trying to do more of it. I, I joke on the podcast that the, the correct sequence is, is design, plan, build. I've been guilty of getting that reversed, and I'm trying to reform here a little bit. So there was some planning, and there it is. Uh, and this is my layout. This is sort of after the whole thing was built. I, I stuck generally with the plan I had, but when it was all over, I wanted to describe to other people who were building BitXs how I did my board. And so this is the 8.5 by 11 board, and these are where the various stages are placed. I think it's important to realize that, that it's not just a mass collection of parts. This is a collection of stages, and that's the way I built it. That's, that's the board layout. And you can see the bi-directional amps that I described before. Here's the first one. Here's the crystal filter, second bi-directional amp, third bi-directional amp. And really, the rig is built kind of 
feeding into and out of these three stages. Okay, now we'll go through it. Here's a, you know, I, I didn't stop at every stage, but here's like the first round. First I built the VXO, and there it is, and it's actually on a separate little board. And then in the, in the lower corner, that's the microphone amp, and then the carrier oscillator. The idea is you build these stages, the best thing to do is build one, stop, test it, make sure it's working. Apply power, put signals in, take a look, and then move on. And that's really strongly recommended in this approach. Um, here we add the balanced modulator stages and the first bi-directional amp. This is kind of interesting up here on the upper, upper side there. That's what the first bi-directional amp looks like. You can see I used kind of a, a Sharpie to kind of square out the, the territory that each stage was going to operate. And, that, and I kind of kept them within those boxes. And again, you can see that this, what's coming together here is not just a mass of parts that are being thrown down on the board but it's being developed stage by stage. There's a second bi-directional amp. You can see it looks almost identical right there, and it's, it's, the board is starting to fill up. Is the sharpie line a cut line? No, they're not. I just, just mark it there. Oh. I just draw it. I'm not cutting anything. The, 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 it's a matter of discipline rather than... Right. It's just a matter of organization. Yeah, discipline, yeah. Nothing is cut. The, the copper clay board was never cut at any point. It stayed completely uh, uncut. There's a, a diode ring mixer that mixes the, the VFO signal with the incoming or outgoing RF. There's the third bi-directional amp, and you can see down here I start building the audio amp, the discrete audio amp that I told you guys about. Is the position of those on there uh, controlled or uh, indicated by proximity requirements? Right? What you really have to do is you just have to make sure that the gazintas are far from the gazoutas, that the inputs are far from the outputs, and you have to, as you're doing it, as you do that initial plan, where you, you've got to think about where you're going to, where your higher-powered RF is going to be, and you don't want you want to kind of minimize the feedback path to the input of amplifiers that could cause oscillation. So I didn't have to do a whole lot of planning, but some. And the idea is basically to try to anticipate, you know, which stages are going to have to go to each one, and what's the best way to avoid feedback and oscillation that's going to cause your heartache later on. But there's the AF amp down there in the lower corner, and as you'll probably see that I went through some experimentation and changes before I got it the way I wanted. Now uh, filters, the pre-driver, and the wiring. So, so now I've got, I built two filters, and really the heart of any SSB rig is the crystal filter. Here's the crystal filter up here. These are the five megahertz crystals that I described earlier, and there's a bandpass filter down here. Now, and the wiring, the wiring is kind of interesting. I just color-coded it, red for receive, green for transmit, and then black for stages that have to stay on in both receive and transmit. And this was very helpful because as I was troubleshooting and trying to figure out what was going on, it was very easy to realize that the red line was powering the receive portion of the transmitter. Um, <clears throat> when you read the article that Farhan wrote, it was kind of cool because he points out that at this point, the receiver works. He says, so he recommends, take a break pause, turn that receiver on, and listen to the magic that comes from a receiver that you built yourself. And I did that. You'll see the RF stages aren't even built yet. Most of the, a good portion of the transmitter is not ready. But the receiver is. And that was really neat because you turned it on, and wow, you're listening to this thing. It, it sounds terrific. It really sounds great. 
And uh, so I did take the break that Farhan recommended, and then we went on. Oh, I used, for the interstage coupling, a lot of guys use RG174, that little thin coax. <laughs> Get away from it, because that gives you what's known as Murphy's whiskers. The braid, the braid on that coax, inevitably, pieces of it break off. And you'll have little bits, little tiny wires floating around in here. And, oh man, it causes a lot of heartache. This stuff, this silver, this silver coax that you see here, it's Belden 1671A. It's got a Teflon dielectric, and there's no insulation on the outside, on the, on, the, on, the, on the shield. So you just solder the shield right to the board, wherever you want. The Teflon never melts, there's no murky whiskers. I really recommend it. You can get it on the web, it's great stuff, and I'd stay away from RG174. But we fired it up, the receiver works, it was great fun. Um, now here I just added a TR relay. You don't even really need a TR relay. Farhan's rig has just a switch. And then the up position, the receive line is powered, and the down position, the transmit line is powered, or vice versa. But I wanted to use push to talk, because I have an aesthetic D104 that I'm very fond of. So I put a TR relay in there. The push to talk on the D104 controls that little relay. Don't forget to put a diode cap, I always tell you that, because those relays, the, the, electro, the, the coil in there will put a really huge electromagnetic pulse in the prior circuitry. A little diode cap across it. It's an old trick. It really saves a lot of trouble. Um, here's the driver and the power amplifier. Actually, I was starting to run out of room here. You, you look at that board at the beginning, you think, oh, God, I got plenty of room. And then you, you always wish you had a little bit more. But here's the, the, the driver, the final, and the, uh, the low-pass filter. You can see the, the heat sink there, right there. That's the IRF 510, that's the final. And um, it gave me a little trouble, but not, not as much as I'm really used to. Um, so <clears throat> this thing then is built. It's not even in the box. It's sitting on the bench just like that. That's what it looks like. I threw a heat kit knob on the front. The variable cap is actually out of a heat kit QF1 Q multiplier. It's a nice little capacitor for this thing. Um, and it's sitting there on the bench. And I'm, 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 I'm checking the receiver, check the transmitter with the dummy load. It's looking good. So I fired it up. And the very first contact was with a CU7 station in the Azores. And let me tell you, that is a sweet moment. When you build this thing, it's sitting there. It's not even in the box. It's as far away from kind of an appliance rig as you could possibly get. It's just a bunch of electronics on your workbench. There's still little bits of solder and wire floating around. And I've got this guy in the Azores, where I used to live, telling me that he's hearing me 5'9", and it sounds good. And you I mean, didn't have the antenna attached, right? I died for <laughs> <laughs> I, I did have the antenna. I did have the antenna, yeah. But it was, uh, it, it was really good. I've only used a dipole antenna with this thing, so that was a good moment. Uh, and I, I really think that we should come up with a name for these contacts, these initial contacts, because for me, they're, they're, they're the most memorable, and they're some of the kind of the, the nicest experiences in home brewing. Um, then I put it in a box. People said, oh, you've got to put it in a box. So I thought about what kind of box I was using, going to use. I went actually went down to Michael's to buy some little boards. But then I realized that they had available this kind of cigar, cigar box thing that fit perfectly. The board fit perfectly. So it was almost fate that I put this in the Michael's box. There's no shielding. It's wood. And a lot of people said, oh, you need, you need metal shielding around it. I don't notice much of a difference. I'll show you. I, I built a second rig. And I, I, I coated the inside with copper flashing that you can get at uh, Home Depot. 
but I don't know. I don't notice a lot of difference, so it seems to work pretty well either way. Um, and you get the witness cigar cherry smells or whatever. No, there's no, 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 no cigar, no actual cigars were harmed in this project. Um, there it is, and it's got only three controls. There's the AF gain control there on the left. The second switches to two crystals. I have two crystals in there. This gives me coverage of about 40 kilohertz of the 17 meter band, which is most of the phone band on 17 meters. I could put a third one in there, but I really don't need it. And the switch on the front panel just controls another little relay that takes one crystal out of the circuit, puts the other one in. So I have like essentially two little sub bands within the 17 meter band. It's extremely stable, it's really nice. And it's a little bit different than running a regular rig, but you just, you just throw the switch over. A guy asked me the other day, he said, what frequency are we on? And I said to him, buddy, I know we're on 17 meters, that's about it. Now, I could calibrate it, I could come in there and get, you know, come up with a little calibration dial, and I will eventually do that. But for now, I mean, I know that in one position, I'm sort of towards the top of 17 meters. I know in the other position, I'm a little bit further down in the band. But it doesn't make much difference to me, and I've been, I've been using it this way for a while. I guess I could put a frequency readout in there. Somebody suggested that I put Hindi language markings on it because of its Indian origins, and I briefly thought about that, but all the guys in India mark, India mark theirs in English, so it would be kind of, kind of, kind of silly. Um, there's no glowing numerals and no, no S meters, but um, there you have it. How long did it take? This is a question I always get, and I actually had to check. I started work on it on August 20th. I work a little bit in each morning before work. I work 30 or 40 minutes you know, each morning. I work a little bit more on weekend mornings. And that first contact took place exactly two months later. So this is not a huge project. I mean, you could have done, I could have done it a lot faster, but I took my time and I didn't you know, kind of get obsessed with it. It's better to take it little by little. But a two month project, it's not too bad. I think it's, it's, uh, it's doable. Um, Problems and setbacks. One thing I always point out on a project like this, uh, home brewing, especially SSB home brewing, is not for the faint of heart. This is not plug and play, and patience is required. These things never work perfectly the first time, no matter how carefully you do it. And I did have problems with this. The receiver at first was, for the first couple of days, it was really kind of deaf. I mean, I, and I, I wrote to Farhan, I said, what do you think? And he said, well, check the mixers. He says, every time we have problems with the receiver, it's with the mixers. And I checked the mixers, and sure enough, I had put diodes in there that had an excessively high forward resistance. I should have used diodes with a much lower forward resistance. And as soon as I changed the diodes, the receiver really brightened up. It was great. Um, I, like I described, I had some trouble with the AF amp. Um, and that was just a matter of adapting the circuit that somebody else had used to this, to this rig, but that worked out pretty well. RF amplifiers, uh, they did oscillate a little bit on this thing. And you always have to look at it that RF amplifiers are beasts that need to be tamed. So there is some exorcism involved. And I, I found also that there's an ugly, there was an ugly ripple in my crystal filter. When you look at the passband of the crystal filter, there's some ugly ripple in there that didn't belong there. It didn't really prevent me from using it. People didn't notice it, but it bothered me, and I later went back and, and fixed it. But you have to be willing, I think, to anticipate. You have to anticipate problems, and you have to sort of be patient and realize that this is just a different way of of, of building radios. Well, yeah. What was the problem with the crystal filter? Well, with the crystal filter, you know, it's everything, each crystal filter is different because the, the physical parameters of the crystals are different. You have to measure the, the parameters of your particular crystals, and then you have to carefully choose based on those parameters and based on your desired passband, 
the values for the caps that shunt the crystals that go to ground, and also the termination impedances. And if you don't get them right, your passband will be off. If you choose capacitor values that are wrong, the passband will be off. And if you choose termination impedances wrong, you'll get ripple. So there's a variety of software packages available that will allow you to take a look at the particular crystals that you're running and tweak the, the, the passband with the capacitors and play with the termination impedances to smooth it out. And once I did that, it worked fine. But this is part of the learning experience. I had never done that before, so I learned a lot from this rig. Um, there's a lot of help available. There's the BX20 EMF, and EMRFD Yahoo groups. There's about 2,000 of these rigs been being built or have been built around the world, so there's a lot of people that you could contact by email to help you. There's mailing lists like these QRPL, and a lot of guys have taken their work on these rigs or particular phases of the operation, produced YouTube videos and put them up. So you can, you can go to those videos and it's a very helpful way to get past problems. Um, the rewards, obviously, a lot of satisfaction. I gotta tell you, when you talk to Hams with this thing, they are amazed when you tell them that you're running a homebrew rig. I think there's a lot more, there are many more homebrew rigs in CW, there aren't that many in phone. So when you get on phone and you tell people you're running a homebrew SSB transceiver, I mean, a lot of times, the guys, they, I have to tell you, they can't process it. They don't, they don't know what you, yeah, but, but what kind of rig is it? Well, it's a homebrew rig. Yeah, but what brand? Well, <laughs> it's called a Bidex. It's from this guy in India, and I tell them the whole story. And they really find it very, uh, I think, uplifting. They're amazed. Some of the newer hams are amazed that this can still be done. So it's been a good experience. I worked yesterday morning on Mark, and uh, he's Oh, great. Oh, terrific. <laughs> great. Um, and you become part of the old ham tradition. Shep and Dilbert would be really proud. Um, you learn a lot. You get to work the world with your own creation. And I always say it's, it's sort of like that book by Tracy Kidder, Soul in the New Machine. You get to put a lot of soul in your new machine, and including like parts that I got from old Heath kits parts that were given to me by friends out of their junk boxes. It makes the rig a real kind of personal creation, and it makes it a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of, if you're asking, should you try this, I definitely recommend it. Um, after all, one of the gurus who've been appointed on this project, but um, I point out this, that this particular rig, or any SSB transceiver, is not really a good first project. You better start out with simple projects. If you're experienced home brewer, go for it. But if you're not, you probably want to start out with simpler projects, maybe a single-stage CW transmitter, maybe move on to a direct conversion receiver. The double sideband rigs that I mentioned earlier are a great way to get into home phone. <laughs> then later, when you've kind of built up some experience and you've gone through some of the frustrations, then maybe later try this, and I certainly would recommend this. Also, another way to approach it is there are kits available. There are a lot of BIDX kits out there for different bands. And some of them, I understand, are quite good. Or you can get the boards. There's a lot of different ways to approach it, but I think it's a, a good project if you've had some experience. So the kit just comes as the blank board and all the you can do. You can get a kit where it's just a blank board, then you get your own parts, or you can get the full kit. I think Hendrix's kit sells the whole kit, including the enclosure and everything like that. So you could do it that way. Uh, results have been spectacular. With my little wild wire dipole, I've had lots of pleasant, long round chews on 17 meters. And this thing, with a little dipole up in the trees in Falls Church, has worked Japan three times with good reports. I worked South Africa with a 5.9 report. I work Europe almost every time I turn it on. Um, listen, I, I'm, gonna, I'm hoping this is going to work. Let's see. I hope we don't.
now I'm going to switch to the other crystal. I got to show you that it actually works with DX. And this was this was a bit of good luck. This was yesterday afternoon. November two, Charlie Quebec Radio. That's November two, Charlie Quebec Radio N two CQR. I'm very good. You're five nine in Northern Virginia. Name is Bill. I'm running five watts to a dipole from a homebrew rig. This is November two, Charlie Quebec Radio. So Slovenia on five watts, so it was a lot of fun. Um, it got a little bit of attention. I know the guys who run the Hacker Day, Hacker Day website, so I sent it to them and they ran a little piece about, uh, about the rig and about how Farhan designed it. And this was an effort to reach out to kind of the other part of the electronic hobbyist community, folks who are more interested in Hacker Day and computers. And I, I must say we got a very positive response. Um, a follow-on project, I built a second one of these. It's a BIDX 2040, it's a dual bander, obviously for 20 and 40 meters. On this one, I wanted to build a VFO and not a VXO, and I was really pleased that I was able to get it very stable. It worked out very well. You can see here, I put the copper, copper flashing in there to see if it would get kind of better shielding. Frankly, I didn't notice much of a difference, but it looks nice. Um, and I used, again, Heathkit parts. Here's Farhan's new design. For those of you who are a little bit more oriented towards newer technology, Farhan has designed a new rig. It's called the Minima. And basically think of it as BIDX meets Arduino and SI570. Instead of my VFO and VXO, he's using direct digital synthesis or the SI570 approach to generating the BFO and the VFO frequencies. It's a general coverage transceiver. It'll cover all the bands. His goal was to make it buildable for less than $100. And I must say, it's sort of against my principles, but I'm really tempted and I may build one of these things just because it looks so cool. If you want more information on the BIDX and the Minima, I mean, just Google Farhan BIDX or Farhan Minima and it'll bring you to the world of websites. There's a very active Yahoo group. There's a Minima group at minima.freelist.org or minima.hfsignals.org. Again, just Google those, those just minima farhand bidx, and you'll, you'll, it'll take you to that whole part of the internet. Um, for, for my stuff on the internet, you could just Google solder smoke one word. I have a daily blog called Solder Smoke Daily News. Um, there's a podcast I mentioned earlier, it goes out once a month. And the book that I mentioned, not really to plug the book, but in case you're interested, here it is. It's available on, on Kindle as an ebook, and you can get it from Lulu also. And again, if you just um, 
go to my website. You can see links to it if you're interested in it. But that's uh, that's the bid X. I have it up here if anyone wants to take a look. I, I realize I got I got we got to keep it short because really I'm just the opening act for Rex Harper W1REX who's going to come in here and talk about QRP. But questions? Quick question: Did you have any trouble with uh, Superglue uh, actually uh, mounting the components and keeping them up metal to metal? No, no. I, the, the, mostly the super glue is just PC board to PC board. So I'm not actually super gluing any of the components to the board. The super glue, it provides like a little platform. You can see it when you come up. You'll see what I'm talking about. Yes. Just very briefly, uh, oscilloscope, how, how, how much, or what, what was the quality of the test equipment needed to make? I'm sorry? The quality of the test equipment. You know, Farhan designed this thing so that you could, you could actually do it with a general coverage receiver and just a digital voltmeter. Now, of course, if you have a scope, it makes life easier. If you have a signal generator, it makes life easier. The more test gear you have, it makes it easier. But this was designed to be built by people with almost no test equipment. So, sir. So I'm working with a friend on a bit of 20, the kit from Hendrix, and uh, we have oscillation. Uh -huh. um, in particular, what, what should I look for in working through this? I mean, in general, just take a look and see if you're getting any RF on the, on the power line, on the DC 12-volt power line, and okay. see if uh, increase in decoupling could knock that down. Take a look at the frequency of the oscillation because that'll give you a hint about where the problem is. But you know, even Farhan has oscillations in his rigs. So I mean, just stick with it. And I would ask for advice on the groups because a lot of people might have had an identical problem, especially working with the kits, and they can give you advice and just take it, take it easy. But you, it will get fixed. It, it can be frustrating. I, I mean, I had a nightmare at one point when I was having oscillation on, on another rig, and my nightmare was that I became so frustrated that I took all the parts off the board, and the board was just sitting there. And it's still oscillating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, any other questions? All right, please come up and take a look at the rig before Rex starts up. So what was your...